Hi there, 27 Speaks listeners. We have a bonus in your podcast feed this week. On Tuesday, February 16th, the Express News Group presented the latest in our series, Express Sessions. The conversation topic was Real Estate Leaders Assess the State of the East End Market. And it took place at the newly opened, newly renovated Canoe Place Inn in Hampton Bays. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode of 27 Speaks. Welcome to Canoe Place Inn and Express Sessions. My name is Gavin Manu. I'm the publisher of the Express News Group, uh, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. Uh, today's event, as you all know, will address the state of the East End real estate market. Uh, we have some terrific panelists who are with us today, and we will get to them in a moment. Um, before we get started, I do want to thank everyone here at Canoe Place Inn. Uh, Mario, Maria, Samantha, uh, Greg and Mitchell Reckler, I believe, are here today. Uh, thank you so much. It's a beautiful location. It's an amazing renovation, and we're very happy uh, for you to welcome us. Thank you. Uh, quickly, I'd also like to thank our media partner, WLIW-FM, uh, their Long Island's only NPR station. Uh, they handle the audio and video for all our Express sessions, which we share online, uh, and they um, share on their outlets as well. So you can listen to WLIW-FM at 88.3 on the East End and 96.9 in Western Suffolk or streaming online at WLIW.org. Uh, really, thank you so much for their support. Thank you. Uh, we do have a, um, a list of sponsors who support uh, this series, and many of them have been with us for years. Uh, the presenting sponsor of the Express Sessions is Rocco Carrero Wealth Partners. Uh, it's a wealth advisory firm based in Southampton and East Hampton. Um, I'd also like to thank the Adam Miller Group, which is a law firm based in Bridgehampton. Uh, Advantage Title, it's a law firm with its main office in Riverhead. Uh, Chris Nuzzi, the executive vice president, is with us today. Thank you, Chris. Um, also, the law firm of uh, Greenberg and Traurig, and Sabre Capital, which is based in Sag Harbor, and the law firm of Toomey, Latham Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Thank you to our sponsors. Um, as for today's discussion, uh, obviously, uh, everyone in this room knows that the, that the days of rock-bottom interest rates are, are clearly in the rearview mirror. Uh, the bidding wars that you guys once were dealing with have, have dropped considerably. Um, and the inventory for home sales is low, but from what I'm hearing, the rental market is going well so far. Um, and I know that President's Day weekend has traditionally marked the start of the busy Hamptons real estate season. So we have this great group of panelists here who are going to help us talk about some of these issues, and I'd like to introduce them now. Uh, joining us are Ernest Servi, who is Corcoran's Regional Senior Vice President for the East End. Thank you, Ernie. Thank you for having me. Ed Brule, who's associate broker with Saunders & Associates. Thank you, Ed. Judy Desiderio, who is CEO of Town & Country Real Estate. Thank you, Judy. Joe Fuhr, the senior managing director for Compass. Thank you, Joe. Enzo Morabito, who is associate broker with Douglas Element. Thank you, Enzo. Phil, Philip O'Connell, who's the Executive Managing Director for Brown Hair Stevens. Thank you, Philip. And Dana Trotter, who is an Associate Broker with Sotheby's International Realty. Thank you, Dana. 
so uh, these events are meant to be a conversation. So we uh, have a mic in the audience. Bill Sutton, our managing editor, will bring around the mic if you want to add to the discussion, have a comment, a question. We do like it to be a back and forth, so feel free to just wave Bill down once we get started. Um, we will be having an after party and a little uh, networking event uh, right next door afterwards. So please feel free to stick around. I know a bunch more of your colleagues will be showing up for the after party. Um, so yeah, drinks are on us. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn things over to the moderator for today's event, the executive editor of the Express News Group, Joe Shaw. Joe? Thank you, Gavin. I uh, appreciate everybody turning out. And yeah, the crowd will be much bigger for the after party. I'm not sure why that is. <laughs> But I have some theories. Um, thank you all for joining us today. We got about an hour or so, so I want to dive right in. And, and I do want to encourage the audience to be part of this conversation. This is the biggest panel I think we've ever had, which is terrific because we'll get a lot of back and forth, I hope. So I want to start the conversation on a bit of a down note. You know, a room full of folks who look at the local real estate market. I think tends to be a very positive environment. Everybody is very positive generally, and I don't want to bring things down, but the number of sales in 2022 was a 10-year low, and the fourth quarter of 2022 was actually the lowest number of sales in a quarter in 13 years. So I want to ask you as a panel, and we'll just go down the list here, talk me off the ledge here that this isn't a turning point, that this isn't significant, that we aren't at the end of something, uh, at the end of 2022, that things are not different in some way that we need to be very significantly concerned about. So why don't we start with Mr. Servi? Okay. Well, first, I just want you to know when we're done here predicting the market, I'm giving you all lottery numbers to play, <laughs> so figure it out. Um, I think, first of all, you're being measured against a year that was record-breaking, that there was no precedent for what happened in 21. So 22, I think, is really was more of a normal year, and uh, the market was normalized during 22, and I think we're seeing that now. So I don't think it's, you can get off the ledge, I don't think it's a, a really down-down market as everyone likes to talk about, because that sells stuff. Fair enough. Okay, Ed? Am I concerned about the market falling off a cliff? Is that the question? Sure. Has no. the market fall, fell no. on, fallen no. off a cliff? No, no, no. Okay. I, the whole paradigm is the off. So like I'm, I want to make sure. I'm not, I'm not there on the paradigm. I'm not following the whole question. The market has never been better. We have an inventory challenge, right, which is solvable, and prices have remained solid. So what part of the market's fallen off? See what I mean? Like we've sold as brokers beautiful homes and beautiful pieces of land to people in the last two, three, four years, and it's performed beautifully. That's it. That's the market. The paradigm of like it's falling off. Like what's falling off? Hampton Bays didn't used to look like this, right? You know, our towns are banging. We're year-round communities. So I no. Okay, fair enough, Judy. Right. You've been watching the market for a long time. Yeah, I'm, I've been doing this quite a while. Lean up to the mic if okay. you would. I just want to make sure everybody can hear you. Sure. And for me, it's all about the numbers. I'm a numbers junkie, and I've been monitoring the market and reporting on it for over 25 years. So the bottom line is 2021, as Ernie said, was a record year. We closed in 2021. My reports are only homes. It doesn't include commercial, land, partial interest, family interest. So homes alone, over $9 billion worth of homes traded on the South Fork alone. And that was a total number of 3,300 plus 
Off the top of my head, I forgot my sheet, my cheat sheet. Um, in a good year, we trade 2,500 homes. So 3,300 in a year of years. So comparing anything to that is really unfair. And 2021 started out with a bang, and then come June when interest rates started to go up, and right before that, a war ensued on the planet, which we were all appalled by. So I, I think that um, there were so many extenuating factors that people took a pause. We are selling a luxury item. So do they have to have it? No. Can they rent it? Yes. And uh, it's just another phase. We'll be, we'll be through this one. Joe, I think Judy called me out here. She's right. I cherry-picked a number. That number doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. There are lots of other numbers to talk about here. But before we begin to do that, because I definitely want to talk about that, it is still a smaller number. The number of sales is down. And, and though the prices are staying up, the number of transactions seem to have really dropped off at the end of last year. Why do you think that is, and, and do we think that may change as we head into the new year here? Well, I think it, uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. I think it directly correlates to inventory. And exactly what Ernie said, and Ed said, and Judy said. By the way, I read your reports, all of them. <laughs> Judy's always the first to come out, so I think we all read her reports first. We base ours off of yours. Um, <laughs> so, um, so if her number's are wrong, all of our numbers are wrong. Uh, um, no, but I think Ernie hit the nail on the head. We normalized. And we are going to compare ourselves to 2020, 2021 for a very, very long time. And that's unfair to do that. Um, we have normalized into uh, what we can sell given the inventory that we have. Uh, and Ed said it beautifully too. It's, it's, this is the most beautiful place on planet Earth. We're all here because we love to live here, and this is why the clients come out. It's, it, it, it's not going to stop. I hate to use the word bubble, but we are in a bubble out here, in a very good bubble. Um, it's, 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 we're protected from- Insular, from, you mean. Yeah, thank you very yes, much. It's an insular good choice market. of words. Yes. yes. I'm stealing that. I think we want to stay away from the B word. I, I don't I, think anybody listen, wants to use that. You put me in the center here, <laughs> things are going to come out that I didn't Fair exactly enough. plan on. <laughs> Enzo, are, are you optimistic that the, the new year, that we're going to start to see more transactions? Well, you know, uh, we, we looked at this year and, uh, a good comparison was 2019, which is going back to normal, and the numbers paralleled that. The inventory paralleled that, the sales paralleled, Judy, you, you, she knows. So uh, it's back to normal, you know. The problem that I think we're gonna have as an industry, I think we have too many people now versus what we have available. So it's gonna get a lot more competitive between the companies, between the individual brokers. You have to really be on your game. And I think this year is a real, real, whoever comes out of this, I think will prosper, the companies, the individuals. And because the numbers, if you look at them and you read them, it, it looks like you're going down the tubes, but you're not. You know, at one point, someone said business is off one third and my answer, I think, was, well, we deal with the other two-thirds, you know? And that's what you have to do. So I think we're in for a good adjustment. Are we going to go anywhere? No, this is Disney World. 
You know, everybody goes to Disney. Okay. Philip, you were nodding uh, when Enzo mentioned 2019. Is that sort of the, the context we need to look at these new numbers in, that we need to start comparing again to pre-pandemic because the pandemic years just were well off the charts as far as anything that we can look at as far as a, a steady... Yes, Joe, I'd, I'd agree with that 100%. You've got to look at 2017, 2018, 2019 and compare those numbers. And when you start looking at, like, this February compared to February 2018 or 2019, the numbers are a little bit down but fairly similar. You, you know, as many have said, inventory is the problem. You have higher interest rates, so people aren't going to sell their house and trade down and pay more to be in a smaller home. And then you have people who want to trade up, but it's too painful to trade up. So it's keeping the inventory tight, which is going to keep our prices stable. Dana, is there something now that real estate sellers need to know, people who are putting their, their houses on the market, that's different now than it was pre-pandemic in, in sort of similar markets? Is it, is it a different situation now? I mean, I've been doing this for 26 years now, not as long as some of the other panelists here, but quite a long time. And I've seen a lot of different market cycles. And I think it always comes down to price. You know, you have to price things correctly. It's a little challenging for us right now to price things because there are a lot of outliers still from the pandemic. Um, but I think if something's priced correctly, it's going to sell. I'm extremely optimistic about Q1 is already very busy for me. Definitely Q4 was quiet. I think people just needed to take a pause from the excitement that was the last couple of years. Was that relatively unusual in your 26 years? Have you ever seen that happen before? Q4 being yeah. quiet? Not at all. That's typically our quiet season. So really, it wasn't that much different from, like we said, 17, 18, 19. So that's our normal. That is fairly normal. Yeah. Okay. So this is the third in a series of three conversations. The first two were on Zoom. Uh, and the last one we did, Ed and I had a conversation before we went on the air, and Ed asked me what the format of the conversation was, and I told him, I'm the idiot in the room that doesn't know anything about the topic we we're discussing. Everybody in this room knows more about it than I do, most likely. And so my job is to ask the dumb questions and learn from you. So let's go there when it comes to inventory. I would like the panel to explain to me, the idiot in the room, I'm fully acknowledging, why is, explain to me why, if I'm somebody who owns a house and I want to put my house on the market, explain to me why the inventory is so low right now. What is it now that has created the inventory crisis and how far back does it go? Does it predate the pandemic or is it just the pandemic? Who wants to take that? I mean, Phil Dana. made the perfect point that a lot of people don't want to trade right now because interest rates are higher than what they have at the moment. So they're not going to trade from a 3% interest rate to a 5 or 6%, right? But interest rates are still historically low. So we have to remember that we're it's even at 5 and 6%, it's really not so bad. It's just that in the situation like Phil explained, it, you know, people aren't going to trade up or down and go to... Now, a lot of my buyers are... Even, even at $3 million are paying cash right now and figuring, you know what, I'll finance it later when the rates come back down. So there's still a lot of cash right now, and I think a lot of buyers want to invest in real estate versus the market at the moment because it's a solid investment. Look at our, the history over the years. And, you know, and the rental income, as Judy mentioned, is a big factor for out here. You know? so, very, very good rental return. So the buyers are out there. 
And the money is out there on that end. It's just that the, because the people who are selling, is that still true that on the South Fork, most of the properties that are going on the market are people who have lived here for a long time and are now <coughs> selling and moving? Is that still? I, I just so, wanted to address the inventory a little yeah. bit. I think prior to the pandemic, we were running six or 7,000 units of inventory, including all the shadow inventory mm -hmm. that was out there. I think we went down in the pandemic to a low of like, 350 to 450 units. So, you know. I mean, that's on the, in the entire, you're saying yeah, that was running, everything running from was. like Santa Maria, you know, the east side of Santa Maria is kind of east. You okay. know, it's, it was really interesting, 2020, um, about 800 people came out here for the fourth quarter and they ended up buying. And uh, we saw that, I think, last year when people try to rent and everybody try to rent at the same time and everybody's going, why can't I rent my house? I go, well, you were the renters. <laughs> you know, you're here now and what do you do? So you, it was like a double whammy. You <clears throat> rented your house and go, well, I can rent it anytime. And it was kind of like an eye opener. I mean, for me that uh, to look at that and basically goes back that so many people ended up buying in that third quarter panic buying, whatever it was. We were trying to save our DNA, save our kids, whatever. And because of that, a lot of the things got kind of a little bit upset. So with the inventory that I'm seeing right now is that a lot of people who bought in that era, that they're putting their properties up for sale because they realize that living here isn't just a matter, well, I can rent it. Well, suppose you can't. You know, and so, and they have all the bills that are associated with it, and now they're back to their normal lives. So I think that's part of the glut. So I see that coming in. I'm, I'm watching it, specifically around the upper ones, middle two. You're seeing a lot of people come and call you, you know, and they, they want to sell it. They don't care what it is. And I think that'll, that'll accelerate as we go through it. Judy, has the, the nature of the seller changed? You know, all, they're, they're all mentioning very important points. Um, the COVID wave took away all the inventory that had sat on the market for years. So inventory, oh my God, it's low. People who were tenants became buyers. People who bought wanted to rent. There were not as many renters as before. But the bottom line is we're surrounded on three sides by water. They can't make any more. There are no more subdivisions. If you want a little piece of East End dirt, you're gonna to have to pay up for it. I hate to say it that way because it sounds so snotty, but, uh, but that's really the end of it. And Enzo, if you have any houses between one and two, we got bidding <laughs> all over. I, I, I really, I would love to, let's talk. Well, we have, let's talk. you know, on west of the canal, we happen to have that that's market right. between yeah. like right. one and a half and See, that's, two that's and a the half. most important part. Right. Every God, market is it, different. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. Every market is different, and every price range within the markets vary. But you know, east of the canal, if you have anything under two million dollars, you have three buyers for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, as I think Dana said, the uh, January from the end of January this year, all of a sudden it picked up. My big question mark is: Is that pent up demand from the last six months of 22, or is this a new wave? That I'm not going to know the answer to until I get my numbers. 
Ed, you wanted to say? Oh, yeah. Bring the so, mic in so a little bit. Just Judy, Judy just triggered me, and, and we, we all kind of, like, I think we're guilty of in this. In a good way, right? In a really good way. A really good way. She said, she said, uh, Slide your mic if, in a you bit. Want, if you want East Hampton real estate, you have to pay up for it. Don't mean to be snobby. Right? And that's probably the biggest mistake I've ever made being a broker, is not being snobby. Right then. During, during snobby, well, what snotty, whatever. What, my, my point is there's a moment in a transaction when the buyer looks at you and says, that land's Montauk nine years ago. That land's not worth $5 million, no chance sold. That land's not worth $10 million, three years later sold for 10. Never worth $10 million. Now it's got a $12 million modern on it and it's worth 33. <clears throat> every single cycle they've told me, you're crazy, it's overpriced, you're wrong, and every person who doesn't take the snotty rap and get it, like if you don't pay up for it, you're going to miss it. They miss it. And it's not so good. There's another problem with the inventory, which I think the agents will attest to. You can't find it because people put it on different listing systems. So the inventory is not in one place <laughs> that you can look and get a full breadth of what's actually available. You have to check three or maybe four places. We hate that. Joe, Everybody you Well, that's that. a whole, that's yeah. a, we could spend a whole afternoon on <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, we got time. Go um, ahead. <laughs> we should, at some point. We should. Um, I think we have to find solutions. And, and this, look, it's the country. It's the North Fork. It's, it's west right. of the canal. It's east of the canal. It's Florida. It's Pittsburgh. It's everywhere. Has, has, everywhere. It, everywhere has everywhere. having inventory issues right now. And, and the Fed has a lot to do with that. And if they decided to change things around a little bit, we, we might see that open up. But... We have to take control right now and create our own inventory. And this is something we've been talking about for a long time, looking at old inventory as new inventory. We've had a lot of success lately revisiting things that have been on the market that haven't had price reductions because the sellers are afraid to go there or they're difficult conversations. But when we come back with the buyer, it's a whole new process. And then the sellers are ready to engage. So looking at old inventory, which is going to create more of an inventory problem, by the way, once we absorb that, we're really going to be in a bad place. But um, are there mortgage broker, is there a mortgage broker in the room anywhere? Anybody in the mortgage industry? No? I'm surprised. That's surprising. Um, <laughs> Good uh, and there's an open bar afterwards, you said? Um, but talk to, your, talk to your bank, talk to your mortgage banker about buying down a rate for those sellers who don't mm -hmm. want to get off the fence, the ones that have to move from three to four and a half to five. You know, perhaps it's uh, something to get them off the fence for a couple of years, buy down that rate, do a seller's concession, and you make some movement. I don't know. I, I'd love for the the room brain trust to start throwing out ideas and, and up here about how to create inventory. But we're trying every little thing we can, you know, every old and new trick in the book. But we have to figure out ourselves how to create it. Sure. You Thank know, whenever a market moves, a transitionary market, there's always a pause. And it always makes people like me just take a look and say why. Now, when I started in, the, in real estate, interest rates were 18%. Mm -hmm. right. So frankly, I think that what this is, is sticker shock. We should have never gone to 2%. Right. When you're taking a mortgage out for 2.25, take as much money as you can, buy as much as you can. So we had the pandemic on top of ridiculously low, artificially low interest rates. So now interest rates are getting to a normal zone. This is a normal zone. We used to say, as long as it's below 10, you're good. So imagine that. Now they're at 5%. It's just sticker shock. This too shall pass. People will realize that's not a crazy amount of money. When you're looking at buying a house and you're doing it on a 20 or a 30-year basis, it's not crazy. 
It's just we're coming off artificially low rates. Gotcha. Dana? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I was just going to go back to the rental market, which I think last year uh, there was so much pent-up travel demand that the other piece of that puzzle, not only did people buy and want to rent their house and all the buyers are no longer tenants, but so many people wanted to travel. So a lot of people went to Europe. I mean, I went to Italy last July, and it was like the Hamptons in August. I mean, it was crazy. So I think this year, I mean, we're already very busy with rentals. I'm not seeing the same sort of, you know, struggles we had last year at this point with rentals. So I, I actually am also optimistic about the rental market this year. So just to be clear, because I think it's an important point for the general public, the absence of sales is not because there's an absence of interest among buyers, and the same is true of renters, right? You have right. plenty of people out there who are looking to buy and rent. Fair we have plenty of people looking to buy, I think. And I think, you know, again, the inventory is something that's challenging for us at the moment. It, you know, you really have to get almost, t take your buyer and, and go find the inventory, you know, however that may be. I mean, off-market, <clears throat> whatever it is. But, you know, there's a lot of demand. It's just that there's not, we're struggling with inventory. And, and the Hamptons is unique. We also have an artificial player in the market, the CPF, with, you know, what's yeah. $80, $90 million in yeah. pocketbook. So that, that sucks up some of our inventory also. Phil, what do, you, what do you think the effect has been of the CPF on the market? Over I, 25 years. I think it's helped to drive up prices. You know, every time that the CPF buys a small piece of land because they don't want another uh, septic system. Septic system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you buy up a $300,000 piece of land, that would have been a local piece of land. You buy up a piece of land that's waterfront between two other pieces of land, all of a sudden now you've raised the prices of those pieces on either side, which will pull up the, the community. You know, Plus the prices they take the inventory off the market. Yes. They right. take bulk acreage off the market that could have been subdivided. But this is good because the master plan was not good. Obviously, the roads, the network of roads, it doesn't accommodate the people that we have here. So the infrastructure gets strained. So it's good that they're taking some of these things off the market. 100%. Well, we but sold last year, CPF bought one of our listings, $10 million they paid for a very, you know, a, a, I mean, very it's a very busy. Price. Yeah, it's a very aggressive price. For, uh, it, it is a, a well-traveled road that was a viewshed for a lot of people. And you know what? As a local, I'm happy to see the CPF spending money on that because I don't want to see houses everywhere. So we were thrilled to do that deal. It's you know, interesting, though. One of the unintended consequences is that it reduces the inventory, right? right. I'm sorry, Enzo. Um, it's, at, at, the, at the end of the day, if someone is willing to sell something at market value, there's no shortage of buyers, exactly. never. I mean, not even close. I think what we do as brokers at this point is that you really kind of have to go in with the people that you're representing and give it your all and say, okay, we'll try that if you can afford it. If you can't afford it, then, you know, then it makes no sense. But if you can afford it and you can bring them there so that they see that you're doing the marketing that you're supposed to do, you're doing everything humanly possible that it is, and it's not working. That kind of where we have to go, I think. And I think that will increase the sales. Now, is there enough for everybody? 
That I'm not sure of yet. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that. Well, these is. down markets always weed out brokers that got their license a couple of years ago and are just trying yeah. it out. And I mean, it's always been that 10% of the brokers are doing 90% of the business. So that I don't think has changed. You know, and I think that there's room for more, but it's. You know, it's kind of always been that way. It's, this is nothing different. Did the pandemic supercharge that? Did you have just a whole lot of people flock in to mm -hmm. becoming yeah. brokers? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. it seemed like free money. Well, and it's funny because really when, I, when I started Nothing's in the free, business, <laughs> when I started in the business, I was 22, which was unheard of at that point. Like everybody, all my colleagues were 50 plus, <laughs> no offense, but you know, or 40 plus. But um, now there's a whole young set of people graduating from college and getting their real estate license. So it's really interesting to see there's a much younger generation of brokers out here now. Understand, I'm saying people thought it was free money. And now in the, I'm the dinosaur. In the, in the same way they think going into journalism is, you know, a matter of high prestige. It's not something you find out once you get in the business. It's hard work, so. I always say the easiest part is getting your license. Yes. <laughs> then the rest is not easy. Yeah. Go, Jeff. In, in addition to that, to the newer agents getting into the business, those of us who have tentacles in New York City, firms, uh, a lot of our firms are, in, are headquartered in New York City. We saw a lot of those agents coming out during the pandemic and housing out here. First of all, they, were, they couldn't put you know, food on their plate at the time. There was nothing selling in New York City. So they all came out here to sell, uh, but they've equally as fast have retreated back to the city now. They're, yeah. they're gone. They, they don't want to work in this market. So I'm <laughs> curious, when we're talking about the levels where the inventory is tight, it, since they're so much higher, is the buyer pool smaller? Like when we're talking about, you know, is, is what is now, um, what used to be under a million dollars, one of the panelists at one of our events said, the under million dollar property is going to go away soon. We won't see it anywhere, certainly east of the canal and maybe further uh, than that. But is the buyer pool smaller or no? Has the, in, has the interest always been at, that, at those high levels and it's and it stayed there? I just don't think you can do a broad stroke. You know, if you're in Montauk and you're looking for a, a house for a million and a half dollars, you're not going to find something decent. If you're in West Hampton Beach or Hampton Bays, sorry, Hampton Bays, or somewhere west of the canal, and you're looking for a million and a half dollar house, you'll get a house. So it depends on the price range, and the inventories flow differently too. So I would say, and, and these guys know as well as I do, if you're between, let's say, 10 million and 20 million, I think we have more inventory than we have buyers. Hmm. Over 20, it's, it's any man's guess. Gotcha. And, you know, under two, it's a, it's a bloodbath still. So it just depends on where you are, what price range you're at, and, and all the, these different and factors. Price, and the price level. Judy, yes. I think you said at one point, if you had, if we had ten times the number of houses on the market at a million and under, you could, that would be, you'd we'd, be able to sell ten times. We'd all be able to sell times. them ten times over. So, yeah. That's an amazing statement. Yep. It really is. Ed, Ed, I'm curious what Joe was just talking about, how much of your job is educating people into, into the, the realities of the local market and, and the geographies of it? All of it. You're teaching. All of it. I think my whole entire career is pivoted toward education, and I think it, the, the more educated the buyer is, the better. So back to inventory, the new buyer is completely different. It's, it's not even close. So you're asking, did the market change? Yeah, the market changed because people live here all year. 
I remember when I started the business, used to sort of hunt around for those summer rental customers or the summer rental buyer, they're buying sort of a share house. Now you look for family homes and people want to live in the community and they want to be part of the, this. So I think just think we live in a completely different world and I love that. But in terms of the pivot, so let's just do this. In the Hamptons during the COVID, I love this. We became the luxury bunker zone. Everyone had to have a luxury bunker. That's why we ran out of toilet paper. They hunkered down and they lived here, right? But then they started going back to the city. And as they went back to the city, um, this is sort of that transition phase right now. So now our rentals are coming back up, right? Our rental demands up and people are moving back to the city. You asked, did the market change? Yeah, it changed, but the buyer pool is so much smarter now and they're so here and they're not going away. So I think the market's never been stronger and I think our communities have never been better and we're becoming year round. Infrastructure is what we should be talking about, but that's my okay. quick So if I have a house on the market right now and it's not selling, well, there's only one reason it's not selling, and that would be the price. So. Is there any benefit to me as a seller being patient and waiting it out? No, because you're likely going to get less money the longer you wait, and that's what most agents would tell a seller. If you want to move the house, lower the price, get it sold now, as opposed to waiting and chasing the market, because you don't know which way that's going to go. Okay. I want to open it up to the audience. If you have questions, comments, please raise your hand. Uh, Bill Sutton has a microphone. We'll come over here. As, um, as we start to do that, before we, before we take our first question, um, I want to ask about the Community Preservation Fund. Uh, I'm sorry, the Community Housing Fund, which was just approved and will go into effect April 1st. And of course, that will add a half percent transfer tax to generate a fund to spend on affordable housing in, you'll certainly see it in Southampton and East Hampton towns. This has the potential to be significant to the local market in the same way the CPF was significant. I'm curious whether you think, as observers of the market, the CHF may create more inventory and thus become a driver of the economy, even as it starts to address the impacts that it's had on the local market. Dana, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I'm I mean, I think that it's definitely something that needs to be addressed within the community. I mean, there are teachers that won't work out here anymore because they can't afford to live out here. I mean, forget it, not just teachers. I mean, secretaries, office staff, you know, uh, um, it's, a, it's a real problem. And you can see it in our service world and even going to restaurants. You know, people can't afford to live out here. So I think it's absolutely, you know, it needs to be addressed. It should have been addressed, you know, long ago probably. Whether or not we needed to add another half a percent, I'm not really sure. There's so much money in the CPF. They probably should have taken half a percent from that and just used it towards, you know. I don't think it's going to open up a lot more inventory because I think that the houses that this CHF will be buying are those houses that are under a million or a million five, and there's just not that many of them. So I'm not sure it's going to change that much, in my opinion. They, the, when the town buys property, one of the key things that they always tell you, we don't want a house on it. <laughs> you know that? They, right. This will be a, a yeah, They don't want houses on it. This will know? be a and reversal. The, the project that uh, Dana was talking about that we were both involved in and, um, on Cedar, Cedar, Cedar Street, um, they, um, there was a couple of uh, cottages there. And the community preservation, uh, East Hampton at least, what they did is that they offered those houses with the land that was there 
So somebody locally is going to be, I believe there was two of those houses they were going to use. There was like three of them, you know, one was it. But instead of ripping them down, somebody who actually lives here, they have to farm the property. Uh, but that's kind of interesting. But in general, you know, do they? No, they're not going to. It's taking, it's taking land away from the marketplace. It's why we live here. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a, a balance between, because anybody who lives next to an ag reserve, you know, uh, take the fields in Bridgehampton and stuff, I mean, the augmentation from a lot sitting there in the woods and sitting on a, on a preserve, it's 20, 30, whatever the market will bear, you know, augmentation of that property. So in a lot of ways, what, uh, what's happened with that, whoever borders on that property, makes a hit, mm -hmm. you know, their properties are there. It does limit the amount of people that can live here, but at the same time, whoever is there, it's, it, there's an augmentation that, uh, that occurs, a radical, radical augmentation. Judy, I'm curious, it's very early, and we don't know until it starts to happen, but what do you think the impact of the Community Housing Fund might be? Um, I agree with Dana 100%, and it should have started a long time ago, but I'm a big planner. I think if you're going to do anything like impose an additional tax, you should have from A to Z everything that's going on. And the amount of affordable housing that's required in each of these hamlets is ginormous. Everything from maybe like whalebone apartments to Levittown kind of subdivisions. And there's a ton of land that the towns own before CPF was even invented. So these swaths of land, like there's hundreds of acres between 27, 114, Stephen Hans Path, and the airport, mm -hmm. hundreds of acres. You can come from the airport road and Stephen Hans Path and do a little network of literally like a little Levittown kind of thing with a community center in the, in the center of it. There are so many things that you can do. You can't just stop at apartments. You can't just stop at little houses. You have to go straight down the road to take care of everyone. I don't know that we needed to increase um, the, the welcome tax that somebody pays. I think there's a ton of money in there, but there's no plan. Just, just to be clear, the, the properties you're talking about weren't purchased with CPF, you said. They, it this was is be, before CPF So they don't have that invented. limitation on them. There are no limitations. Hmm. Enzo's talking about the property that's been purchased in the last however many years CPF has yeah. been around. But the towns have been buying up properties yeah. forever, and there's tons of it. Um, I think if somebody took a master plan of the East End, North Fork, South Fork, East End, West End, took a look at what was purchased before CPF and really wanted to tackle this problem, they would. That's very in smart. fact, in all my years, twice the towns <clears throat> hired outside consultants, and they said you must allow for accessory structures, you must allow for mother-daughter, you, you need to increase your affordable housing. They didn't say you need to tax people. They said you need a plan. Where's the plan? I don't want to sound cantankerous. Nice. No, though, no, no, no. <laughs> cantankerous that is good. That one got me, though. <laughs> Nothing wrong with cantankerous. Uh, do we have any questions in the audience? I think we have one up here. Uh, right here. Hi, everyone. If you can introduce yourself, please. Rafael Vigdor from Dr. Sullivan. Hello, everyone. Esteemed colleagues. Um, one thing that we haven't discussed and mentioned, and I think it's influencing the market, is what we'll call consumer confidence 
and the buyer trepidation that's out there. A lot of the Wall Street guys that have fed our markets so strongly um, all have a doom and gloom perspective of the economy and what it will be in the future. And therefore, those that are out there are waffling on their offers. And I've got a bunch of things going sideways and backwards right now. And I think that it comes down to a general consumer confidence and a general consumer psychology. Once the press and once the, well, once that the market stabilize and the press can present a better optimistic picture about the future and the stability of the market, I think people will come out of their shells, out of their fear, uh, their fear shells, and they'll start to purchase more. There are buyers out there, but even the buyers that I deal with are still not on the same page with the sellers in terms of market valuation. The COVID bump has not really stable, has not really uh, um, found its new balance. And I think that all of these things have to come together. I don't think we have much choice but to be patient in the process. Either convince our sellers to come down and see if that can help to stimulate um, the activity, or try to influence the press in some way to start writing more favorable articles about what's going on out here. Because they do drive, they do drive the perception. And it really comes down to a psychology where if buyers feel the market's not going to correct by 20% more, the, their, their, the, the prices don't really come down um, significantly in the Hamptons, at least my experience over the 20 years, and that it's not a bad time to buy now that interest rates are not egregious. As you mentioned, I remember when they were 18%. Um, and I think that it, it comes down to uh, trying to form the psychology of the buying pool. Mm. Um, and Can also other factors influenced in Manhattan and how clean Manhattan is or how safe Manhattan is feeling in terms of them you know, wanting an escape or not needing the escape anymore. You mind if I gently push back a little sure. bit? You mean small p press, obviously, right? You're, you're talking about the press in general. I'm, like, talking about the, I'm talking about market perception, which is influenced by press, right? So is the, does that really have a significant impact on this particular market? Because I've always had the impression, that's really interesting to me, because I've always had the impression that the bubble that we talked about, the insular nature of the market, that all of that stuff was sort of excluded. The people who were buyers here were very focused and sort of filtered all of that out and didn't really read the articles and they, they were sort of more aware themselves. But you're telling me that's not necessarily well, true. Well, our, our typical affected buyer that needs that car and needs that image and needs that house um, certainly wants to buy, but he's on the ledge because his Wall Street buddies are telling him we're headed for a bloodbath, and I've heard that word from many Wall Street guys, and I have buyers on all levels that are holding off thinking that this market's going to severely correct. So changing that perception that if they wait, they'll do better I see. is going to help influence. And it only takes one penguin to jump, right? Once the first ones jump and it's perceived that the penguin flock is moving, they're all going <coughs> to jump. So it's really, I think, very much psychologically influenced in terms of what the... I don't know if uh, I'm agreeing with you, bro. No? I think okay. it's a broker's responsibility to get in front of their clients and tell them before the media does it. Before the media does. Yeah. Well, certainly, yes. I'm not waiting for the media to tell me about the market. No, certainly, yes. And I'm not expecting anything I do to affect the media. But we at only all. touch the circle of buyers that approach us, right? So we can only touch the 20 people that might be on the table in front of us, whereas the media can influence hundreds and thousands of people. I think it's just general minds. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think it's a general mindset of 
buy of put, putting people in that buying mode, that mentality that look, it's time to buy, like it was time to go to Europe because post COVID we could go and the market and the and the general market, our buyers flocked to Europe last summer. I think when they when they see the penguins jumping towards the Hamptons again, it will open that wave of greater activity. But I do think it's a psychological uh, hesitation or trepidation that is holding the buyers back right now. I appreciate it. That's really good stuff. I, Anybody I else like want? your penguin analogy. That's very good. I do agree with Ed, though. I think the, the, the point is, is that you have to educate your buyer enough so that they start buying and actually their friends start buying when they start buying. So when the, that, that's how you educate the flock of penguins, you know, Correct. by getting their, them to buy. Correct. So that by once they see their friends media. buying. But once the media's in, I'm going short. <laughs> right. <laughs> because the media is sort of a lagger, right? They come in Very. late. You know what, Raphael? It also has to do with the demographic of your buyer Absolutely. and their age. If that guy has been around when Baron Lehman fell, okay, 2009 was a record low year for out here. The entire South Fork, only 1,000 houses sold. That means there were about five agents for every one house that sold. You get the numbers? So we can't control something like a COVID like a Baron Lehman falling, like a war, God forbid, 9-11. We can't control these catastrophic events, and those are the events that really catapult our market. Other than that, we're plodding along at about 2,000 trades, homes, on the South Fork. That's it, you know? So I, I don't know that, I, I, I mean, I think you're powerful, Joe, but I don't think you can, you know, the Southampton Press, I don't think they're going to make no. people the penguin jump, yeah. but... I'm not saying that that's how we should progress our efforts. By all means, communicate with the people that you do communicate with. Try to convince your buyers that this is not going to go down significantly, that you found the perfect house, you should jump on it now. 5% is not going to make the difference in your happiness. What getting the house or not getting this house you'll be thinking about for the next five years. Why didn't we buy that? Will it influence your happiness? Raphael, I'm, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead, go, finish. Yeah, not, there's not an argument by any means. I just think it's... We're not, we, we hadn't mentioned the psychological factor of the market. And I, I think that in order to do that, really, we need economists also to be looking you know, significantly at where, where really, and no one really knows, right? No one's got that perspective. No, but where is but psychology is a big part of it, right? Enzo? I mean, within the demographics of certain buyers, you can't deny that all these kids on Wall Street that are out of jobs. Right. And they're not, this is not psychological. No, no, it's real. You know, and you say there, well, how does that affect you? It affects a certain market, you know? So it, it's what, I, what we were saying before, you know, that, oh, we're off one-third. We'll work with the other two-thirds. But it's, it would be ludicrous for us to say, oh, this is psychological. It's not. They, they, don't, me... they don't have the money right now to do that. They don't have the security to do that within a certain price range. Mm -hmm. Let but, me flip this on its can, head for a second. We can all say one thing for certain. Just like the stock market kind of goes like this, uh -huh. but the trajectory is like that. Mm -hmm. You buy East End dirt, it may go like this, but the trajectory is like that. Mm -hmm. So Thank if you're a long-term player, you're going to buy and hold your house. Yep. You know, you just give them the numbers, and the numbers speak for themselves. Philip. Yeah, COVID could have won either way. Our market could have fell out and seized. <laughs> we got lucky. It took off. So the market's... The market basically seized for about two weeks, right? Stock market drops out. People were still buying. I'm sure all their friends were saying, you're crazy, don't buy, don't buy. Who's laughing now, two or three years later, right? Their houses are up, 
20, 30, 40% in some cases. So, but I do agree with you, the, the overarching psychological effect across the nation has an effect on our buyers. They see home prices down, not as many sales, you know, when they're watching the morning news. But, you know, as, as many people have said here, you get the opportunity to interact with them and educate them and give them your expert opinion, and that's... That's the key. The key right now is when you have a buyer and with my team and stuff, I think the first two weeks, oh, I want to go out there and I want to look, and I go, no, why don't we educate you now? So I don't have to waste my time. You don't have to waste your time. And that's become the real, real key so that they get a good grip on what's going on and they don't com come to you with false expectations. You know, somebody will go, I don't care what it is, you know, I want, I want to see blood. I go, there is no blood, you know? Uh, yeah. And so that, let me the, the, that's, that's really, really what this is all about, and educating them. Let me you know, try once, turning this around, once they're there. I'm curious whether the psychology and the concerns about the economy will push people into the market, too, because it's a good investment and a safe place to put and money. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, go yes. ahead. Absolutely. Go ahead, Ed. Yes, that happens too. Sometimes you have to convince people when the market's on fire and Wall Street's on fire to still take their money out and buy a house. So you, know, you can have both arguments. It happens yep. on both sides. Ed, you want yeah, to say I had too? a really good one yesterday. So I have a piece of land in East Hampton on the fringe. Some guy's been calling me for a week or two and he's like, I'm just meeting you over there. So you know, I met him at the property and we get out and we're walking around a piece of land. It's a real pretty day yesterday. And he starts talking, and, and the craziest part during the conversation, he opens up and he says, you know what, Ed? It was about 18, 20 months ago, I had been burned on so many different things, from Bitcoin to crypto to stocks. I just said, F it, I'm out, sold everything, and put everything on East Hampton land. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way this guy's telling me this story. 15 large in East Hampton land 18 months ago. It was the best possible move you could have made in terms of like what you've seen happen. So it, are we really worrying about three points on the buy-in? Uh, what are we doing here, right? This, this, these things appreciate at six to 80 year worst case, right? So we're trying to chase like, oh, I'm paying. I think the problem with the inventory is the buyer's overeducated and they're afraid to overpay. They should start to overpay before they lose it because we're going to go back into another cycle and they're regret having missed it. That's what I think we're happening here. Hmm. You, you the other thing we haven't discussed is the fact that, you know, Sadly, the, the news is fairly depressing at the moment with everything that's going on in the world. And I think a lot of buyers, especially from COVID, have realized what's important in life and they want to enjoy their life. They want to have, they want to have you know, time with family. They want to have space for their kids to run around. They want to have you know, the day-to-day you know, luxuries that they can afford. And I think, frankly, you know, that COVID was good for a lot of people in that sense. And so I think that, you know, a lot of buyers just look at, it, it, not only is it a great investment out here, not only do they have a, the opportunity to rent it if they want to, but they also have quality of life. And I think that's something that's become really important to people when you look around the world and see what some other people are dealing with at the moment. So, you know, there, I, I think that's a big factor for us. And Dana, that leads me to, to make the point that we talked earlier on about the unit sales, the number of transactions that are taking place. But we have to talk about prices, too. The prices now, I believe the median sales price, we just had our Pulse section this week, the median sales price last year was, I believe, $1.5 million in that range, which is well above anything um, that we saw pre-pandemic. It's down a bit from the height of the pandemic, 
but it's still 50% above where we, we would always sort of approach that million dollar median price but never got above it. Now we're, we're up around 1.5. So prices are in a place where they're really healthy, right? That, that's, that's the other side of this coin that the supply and demand has pushed prices to a level that we haven't really seen. If, right. if you look, if you put all the reports together from the country, different regions, <clears throat> it's amazing how they mirror each other. Even it's, I mean, it's scary, you know, go to Greenwich, you know, go wherever, wherever our price range is, Florida. Texas. You're talking about luxury markets, yeah. Aspen. Luxury and, market, yeah. you, and you put it, put it together, the Hamptons with any other, it's like a mirror, each one of them. I looked at them before we got here today, and I, I took all the reports from, we, we have offices all over the country, specifically we target that. And you put them there, and it's almost like you're looking at the same, the same report. I mean, I was on a panel a couple of weeks yeah, ago with someone from yeah, Italy, and it was the same yeah. thing. So even their luxury markets are doing the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. across the world. It's the demographic of the buyer. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, the buyer's connected to finance when the finance gets high, and whether it's a bonus that people are getting. I used to say the bonuses take the jitney right out east, you know, yeah. um, and they do. But when the stock market does well, or your art does well, yachts do well, East End Dirt does well, it's... This year the bonuses will be carpooling out here. <laughs> yeah, bonuses are down this year, right? I mean, they were down at the end of last year. They might year, rent so. this year, but they'll buy next year. Ed, you were going to say? Not, 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 not true, actually. One builder told me the other day, a classic story, he said, hey, it only takes one. There's eight million people in New York City. One person needs to make a million dollars. Boom, hit a home run, hit a stock trade, whatever. Boom, they buy a house in the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. There's tons of them. Okay, so here, this is a quick story. Watermill Crossing is the townhouse development that I'm a part of, right? And who would have thought that you would have sold 22 of them off of a cartoon? You know what I mean? Literally, we put that thing out. We did the beautiful brochure, Saunders is as good as they go, we had a really good story, but there was nothing more than drawings, right? And, and how did we sell them? We sold them because the underlying dirt in this earth is worth every bit of that number. That's why, that was it. You're, you're, these people had bought them before, they have one in Aspen, they have one in Miami, and the math just made sense. So as you're going through the pitch, like you, I already have one everywhere else, can I have one here? The Hamptons needs more of that, a lot more full service year round buyers. So anyways, back to the, who was the buyer? We thought the buyer was gonna be more of a selling the estate on the ocean and trading down. That never happened. It ended up being those estate owners bought one for either a daughter or a family member, mm. or the super successful 45, 50 year old young couple bought one for mom and dad. And it, I couldn't tell whether who, dad was buying for daughter or daughter was buying for mom. It was the coolest thing ever and both of them were both sides, but they were all year rounders. My point is the year round buyer is smarter, savvier, and they know what they wanna pay. We haven't found that price point thing, but we'll solve that inventory problem real soon. Wow, that's fascinating. I want to open it up to the audience again. Any questions, comments? Anybody have anything to, over here, yeah. Somebody over there will get you too. Hi, um, I'm Duran Telberg from Douglas Elliman. I have a general question. Um, for new construction in the last few years, the home sizes have gotten larger, 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 larger. Do you see that trend continuing, or do you think smaller houses, like really around 5,000 square feet, might be um, profitable for the builders? That's a great question. Joe, you want to take it first? What, what's, what's your take on that? 
I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, I think there's definitely a trend to smaller houses. I was going to say, it's like a Dana or Ed who are in the field. I mean, the problem problem with builders is when they're buying the expensive dirt, it's really not that much more expensive for them to build 8,000 versus 6,000. And they figure, you know, if it's more bang for the buck, they'll build the 8,000. But, you know, frankly, a lot of buyers that I've worked with over the past few years actually want a normal size house and it's hard to find. I mean, if you have a 10,000 square foot house, you have a full staff and a lot of people don't want that anymore. So I think there is a trend towards smaller, more manageable size homes. Yeah, it luxuries. Sorry, Joe, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I love that, Dana, because I've just seen two or three builders lately have been building these bigger 12s and 10,000 square foot houses with this separate wing for the owner to live for the nine months a year where literally you know 80% of the house just shuts down but it's still cute and quaint and they live in it I couldn't believe it two last year one being built right now so you can kind of see who's buying it in the summer it'll be a you know resort and then in the year-round it'll be their office it's not, any- a, it's not uncommon though mm-hmm. if you look at Lily Pond Lane Gin Lane you're looking at gigantic estates that at one point became white elephants couldn't sell them then the 3,000 square foot house was under the most demand. Then it was 5,000 square foot. Then it was 10,000 square foot. Now it's rolling back to five or 6,000 square feet. It's got to do with the overall economy, the demographic of the buyer. 10,000 baby boomers are retiring every day. Taxes are drawing them to Florida, but they don't want to let go of something up here. There's so many different factors that, that come into play, but you can monitor the trends. Do you see any kind of a growing trend of people who factor in the idea that they will rent a new property that they're buying out for part of the year to make it financially justifiable? Is that something? <laughs> is that something that people are doing at all? Are you seeing any of that, Enzo? People buying it to rent. The people will buy a house with the idea being that I am going to rent this house for part of the year. I mean, I realize that's not going to happen at the top end of the market. You know, most most of my clients know. That's, that's kind of like a different client that, do, that does that, that comes in and goes, well, I want to buy that house and I want to rent it. And, and quite frankly, I looked at them, I go, I don't really care what you do with it. Right. You know? You know it's you, not pushing new no, buyers. No, you're buying the house, you buy the house, good for you, you know, rent it. Uh, but um, we... Uh, one, one of the one of the, kind of a, a, a turning point for me because I wasn't too sure how this market was gonna you know after January right at the beginning of January when we all make our resolution um, there was a project that's going on in uh, West Hampton Beach it's new it's a new subdivision and um, and they had 22 homes and they went in there and uh, I was talking to Greg before when we were having lunch. And they went in there and they had 22 homes. They overpriced everything. They got carried away because the project was, you know, years in the making and they got carried away, overpriced everything. Uh, We took the project over and I I was going like, oh my God, you know, what what are we doing? I go, well, we'll just sit it out. I go, let's see, you know, for, for a year, let's see where we go with it and see there. As soon as they reduce the prices, we have seven of those homes in about three, four weeks going to contract. And why? Because they went from close to three, starting at two, you know, that type of situation was sold out with the lower ones. So it goes back to what I, what I keep saying. It's all about the pricing. And more important than that, I think we all agree, given any choice, 
somebody will buy a new home. If, if it's close, they'll buy a new home. They prefer that, which I didn't used to believe in there until we went through with this uh, situation. So the market is alive. And before that, they were, it was just sitting there. I go, oh, there's nothing happening here. You the know, other I, interesting trend is the pre-constructions. I mean, I've never, I mean, I just sold one of my listings at Three Baldwin, a really beautiful house um, built by Rimlin, well, will be built by Rimlin Construction. And it's not even a hole in the ground yet. It's literally not even yep. started construction, and I sold three of those last year under construction. Mm -hmm. So we've never had buyers that are willing to be patient and wait for something that hasn't even been started. And that's, that's a new COVID that's thing. A, that's an illusion, you know. When I have builders come up to me and go, oh, okay, why don't we sell it now, pre-construction? You know, yeah, I go, right. You know, and you, you sit there for a year and a half, and until it's completed, people don't want to move in there, unless the market is raging. Well, we used to tell builders to yeah. wait until it's near completion because you'll get a premium at that point. But what my point is, we're getting premiums before there's even a hole in the ground now. Yeah, it's great. That's amazing. It depends on the location and the price point. You know, if you're in a location... So this is a $6 million house. Yeah. It's not a $2 million house. No, 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 exactly. But if it's in a location where you can't duplicate it, yeah, I mean, there, it's, there it's, is nothing that comps it's it. It's Sag Harbor Fringe, which yeah. is very popular. It's, yep. it's, it's the land. You know, when you look at a house and you have a land, the land is going up in value. The house is starting to deteriorate. And eventually here, if you wait long enough, seems to be about seven to ten years, <laughs> no matter what, that the land catches up to whatever you sold your house for, mm -hmm. and the whole cycle starts all over again. And that's what we have south of the highway, you know, in Bridgehampton, uh, where it was there. You're buying a $5 million uh, lot. That's what you're buying. So the land is the, the central, it's the location of where it is, you know, what, what really determines it. And the market turns all the time. Ed, you mentioned your buyers who were year-round residents. Um, I noticed, and we were just chatting about it um, recently, that this winter season, despite the weather being the way it's been, has seemed a lot quieter this year. Now, that may just be recency bias that we're comparing it to the pandemic when everybody was out here all the time. Do we have any kind of a change coming as far as the, the year round? I think that's don't get out bias, Joe. I'm saying? I think that might be don't get out bias. <laughs> Fair no, I'm just saying, if you haven't seen St. Ambrose, yeah. right, and you haven't been to the Tuto in East Hampton, the coffee shop, then you haven't been out right? Because I just went to both of them. But it's not, guys, this used to be Tumbleweed Tuesday all year, right? When we moved out here, I was really spooked to commit with Mariah to living in East Hampton because Tuesday freaked me out. If you've ever been through a real Tumbleweed Tuesday, it's so scary. It freaked me out. I didn't want to live here. I did not want to raise our kids here. It was real. There was boards up. People left. It was like serious. Like there was music and stuff and tumbleweeds. It was like gone. And I said, I can't literal commit. Tumbleweeds. I can't, I've commit. Seen I literal can't commit to this town. And then Slowly, it ended up coming around, but we should be grateful that we're in Hampton Bays with this amazing round room and so you're doing a gig. This is a false. This is the press again being negative. No, no, and no but I, I still don't understand. There's no, they can try to be negative, but the underlying market's appreciated. The communities are banging. Everybody I talk to who's got a restaurant is exceeding last year's numbers. So like the commercial world is thriving. You keep talking about inventory problems and broker sales issues. These are not the overall market. The market is the Hamptons. We're rocking. Everything's good. Joe, I asked an Joe. agent earlier, um, are you busy right now? 
She said, I can't get a reservation at the East Hampton Grill on the weekend exactly. before yeah. 5 o'clock. So That's that true. tells you exactly how All busy year. Yeah. So let me ask you, the, right the other way, is it the other way around? That, that we're seeing much more of a, a year-round clientele, and that's sticking around. It's not just a pandemic phenomenon. Yeah, Gavin and I were talking earlier, and he said he went to Sag Pizza a couple of weeks ago and couldn't get a table. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's February. You know, um, we went to, there's a great new restaurant on Shelter Island. If you haven't been, I highly suggest Leon 1909. It's a fantastic experience and it's Shelter Island. So um, the only reason why I pointed it out is because Shelter Island, you know, is not like Sag Harbor or Amagansett or any of the other towns. I mean, it's, it's quieter, right, in the winter. You can't get a reservation there on the weekends. It's, it's crazy, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's that good. What are you folks seeing about all of this, so the, the stuff we're talking about? Yeah. And let, me, let me get the microphone to you here. Introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Chris Tice Corcoran. I was just going to mention that there was a discussion earlier about the, what was going on in the market today and what happened in 2009 when the financial markets imploded. And so many of the real estate markets took a huge hit, like Phoenix or Vegas, where they lost 75 80%. And even then, I mean, I got, in, I, I got into this business in 2008, so I remember it very clearly what happened in 2009. But, but it was still a pause and a slight reset. We did not see what most of the country saw. So even now, with an increase in interest rates, with the instability in plenty of places in the world, and people may sit back a little, I think we can confidently say that our market is immune to most of that reverberation that happens in investments in other real estate, that we're a safe haven to put your money in real estate because we don't experience those earthquakes. It's really intriguing. That's the wrong thing actually, to say. We don't, actually, long I shouldn't term, say earthquake, but. Long term, you're correct. Long term, yeah. it's an outstanding <coughs> investment. I highly recommend it. But when you point out 09 and you're down to the entire South Fork, had just over 1,000 right. homes change hands, and normally we're between two and three, right. and in right. 21 it was 3,300. It does have an impact? It does, but, it's, but, but what I didn't see, and maybe you saw something differently, what I didn't see is homes losing 30, 40, 50, 60 percent. Ask anyone we who saw was a slowdown. in South. We saw a slowdown, mm. but then as it came back, it wasn't a reset in many of those other markets, it went down, and, and they didn't gain that 70 or 80% back. They still have it. Mm. And it's, you know, and it's well, 14 years markets. later. So that was just my point yeah. that yeah. if you're going to be owning for five, six, seven years, I don't think that you have to be concerned. And you have to find, if you find a house you love, to Ed's point, <clears throat> why wait? Because you're going to lose it. You're not going to find another exactly. one. Yeah. And if you're going to be in this for any period of time, it's going to be a good investment. That's that was absolutely true. Long I have term. to say your perspective yeah. is interesting, too. If you started in 2008 right. and ran right into the whole right. wall of 2009 and you come through that, that gives you a, a perspective on the current situation. I, I respect that, I think. But, I, want, I yeah. just want to say, this is a broker panel, but I'll tell you a really good story. I remember one of the deals I did in Montauk, and it was the best buyer I ever worked with. He's now passed. He must have been 82. And he was buying an oceanfront property, and, and he had to pay 30%. It was in a bidding war. 30% over. And he said, I'll never lose a property over 30% more. And I'm thinking to myself, you're awfully trained. You're 82 to be able to go to 30, you know what I mean? But he was so right. He was so, 30, right? You can't even get your customers to go two, right? Three points, four points. Come on, give me two more points. This guy's 30 long, won't lose a property. I'm like, wow, those are the lessons you want to take At 82, away. he was thinking for the long term, what right? What year was that? 
That was the Panorama View in 2009. 2009, and you had to pay okay. four or five for a okay. two-bedroom co-op, which is now worth way more now. An 80-year-old who's gone through a, yeah, yeah. who's gone through several cycles, different cycles, yeah. knew yeah. that that was a he great knew. time he, to and buy. And he was so right. and he didn't care. And he didn't even care. Yeah. He was like 30 points, and I was, was 30 percent. Every in my office is like, you couldn't get five, seven percent more. He's like, done. <laughs> but he was back to like he he was right. You're better off being right. Just pay up. Right, if you if you like it, because if you don't like it, who cares anyways? Right, right? If, you know, if you don't, but if you really love it, three and four, five points, it's irrelevant. Make it and great. And as she said, if value. you're in it long term, more than five years, you're adding value. Yes, yes no exactly. matter what, exactly. it's got only but up to go. It goes back to Enzo's point that it's all about price, right? On both sides I of the it equation, is. it really I think is. It's, it's that location. simple. And location. The definition of market value is the highest price that a buyer will pay in and the, the lowest market. price that the seller the will sell. In the current market. Exactly. Other questions, comments? Thanks. So let me ask Judy to put on your fortune teller hat. Uh, Since you look at that, you're like a beautiful mind. You look at the numbers <laughs> and they come into focus. So give me an idea. What, what do you see when, I, I'm genuinely curious, when you look at the trends that you're seeing right now, numbers wise, Put this into pers perspective for us over the, the last 20-year history. Where, where are we? Where is this thing likely headed? Nobody's going to hold you to your predictions. You're just winging it here. That's an excellent question. As I said before, the market moving into COVID was a stale market. COVID wiped out all the inventory we had. We're still, whether you want to admit it or not, we're still relatively low on inventory where the bulk of the business is. Again, everything's numbers. You got a finite amount at the high end, finite amount at the low end. We know where the medium is, and that's where the market is. What I see now, barring nothing catastrophic, again, I talked about catastrophic events, you know, 9-11, the 87 crash. I've been through all of them. Um, so barring nothing catastrophic, I don't see our prices going down. And long term, all of my investment dollars are East End Dirt. I wish my stockbroker and my financial advisor would have let exactly. me take all my money in East exactly. End Dirt. I would have done better than my stocks and bonds and the rest of the crap. I'll take East End Dirt any day. Is there a difference at different levels of the market? If we're talking about the very low end of the market, that's a completely different scenario than, than other parts, right? You know, if you, uh, I, I look at buyers sometimes, we're, we're negotiating on a deal near here, and you know, difference a couple of hundred thousand on a five $5 million home. And the, um, he goes, oh, you know, I don't want to overpay, so we did our homework. You're not overpaying. You're not overpaying by square footage. You're not overpaying by lot, any way we looked at it that we analyzed it, he was not overpaying. And I go, are you gonna flip this damn thing? You know, you're buying it, so you wanna sell it next year? I go, you're not gonna make any money. I go, you're gonna live here with your family for 10 years? And yeah, I go, and then shut up and enjoy it. <laughs> Why? You didn't you're, say you're shut up. I did say you shut did? up. He's a and friend. You it anyway. He's a friend. Yeah, he's right. a friend. But no, I just said shut up and buy the damn thing. You know? <laughs> shut go, up no, and buy the damn thing. Any money. Yeah, that oh, could be yeah, the, the title we'll of our flip, you know? the title of our next event, Ed. Oh, I just wanted to say something came up on the podcast last time that we got some good comments on, and it was about inventory solutions, and. Um, one of them was a broker calling me after the podcast saying, would you jump on a call with my buyer? Imagine that. 
<laughs> so yes, I did, right? So we had a, we had a call and you talked through the math. There's houses, spec stuff, new stuff, selling for $4 million on a street that's got 801 twos, right? So if you own the one two, go to the bank, pull some money out, <laughs> power wash it and paint it and try to get a 1-8 or even take a $250,000 loan with a good construction friend and put some money into it and get it ready to... My point is there's so many inventory solutions here and the owner of this solution doesn't know that they have the solution. Like grandma's sitting in a house worth 2-2 and she thinks it's worth 800 and she's living small. Now if we can educate anybody, it's them. Like teach them how to like understand, bring a grandson in, turn this thing into some value, put it on the market, get a good broker, turn it into a rental. Like there's a lot of dead houses here that need to come alive. So I think that's the inventory solution, but we need to educate. <coughs> and that is that just at the lowest end of the market? Every market. You're market. talking about everywhere, every level every of the market. Street, everywhere. There's anywhere money there's, to invest to get money back. If there's a mix ma mismatch, you're looking for that <coughs> mismatch, right? A five million dollar comp on a street with a one eight mm -hmm. or a one two, you know what I mean? You have to ask yourself, can I add value here. Mm -hmm. Well, if we all put our houses on the market, that would help the inventory. So just <laughs> but we all need, we and all I say need, don't sell. And, and then, then, we all need and then where do we go unless exactly. we're leaving? Where's everybody going to go? Turn off the lights when you're the last one out. <laughs> all right. Anything else from anybody? Anything we didn't cover here that you'd like to talk about? I think it was a great conversation. Can you join me in thanking our panelists? <laughs> Thank you again to our sponsors for this three-part event that we did focused on the real estate industry. We're going to do a lot more of this. And I invite you all to stick around for the mixer now. And I think the bar is open, right? Okay. So thank you very thank much, you. guys. Thanks for coming. <laughs>